BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. Good to see you for another edition of the Bill Press Pod. Looking today at the state of American workers with Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Well, this almost post-pandemic world is in fact a new era for America's working men and women, many of whom choose not to return to work, but those who do face many new opportunities and new challenges. New opportunities in the shape of higher wages, more flexibility in working hours and place of work, more choices of jobs, and greater power at the bargaining table. But new challenges, first in adjusting to those new conditions, but also in confronting employers, big corporations who remain stuck in the past and, with the help of too many conservative judges in this country, refuse to recognize even basic workers' rights. Many of those challenges play out especially in the airline industry, which was badly hit by the pandemic and is now struggling to get back to business as usual and dealing with its own set of labor issues. Sarah Nelson, one of America's most dynamic labor leaders and president of the Association of Flight Attendants, representing over 50,000 flight attendants working for 17 different airlines, joins us today to talk about that state of the airline industry and about the state of American workers in general. Sarah Nelson, good to connect with you again. Thank you for joining us here today on the Bill Press Pod. Always great to be with you, Bill. Thank you. So, Sarah, let's start with some troubling news over the weekend. Yet again, a flight attendant uh, facing an unruly passenger. This was a Southwest flight attendant. Uh, what can you tell us? What's the what's the latest? How's she doing? And what happened? Well, first of all, I think that we're all done with calling these people unruly. This yeah. is disruptive and violent, and it's uh, making our workplace a really dangerous place to be. Uh, and there's a lot of trepidation. Flight attendants are there for the safety, health, and security. The passengers in our care, we have very specific duties to carry out. And when we're distracted and when the flight deck is distracted with these things, that interrupts the normal safety procedures that we have in place. So thank you so much for asking about the flight attendant because, um, you know, these are also real people who have worked through the pandemic and been on the front lines and really um, have in their hearts that aviation is about bringing people together, not tearing them apart. So this is really disorienting in our workplace and it's scary. Um, And the people who have been through these incidents are having a hard time recovering from it because you're in such a confined space. You can't Mm -hmm. get away. And imagining going back into that space with your uniform that you now know is a target That is really a tough thing. And I have to tell you that um, because we have these jobs that are so unique, flight attendants really identify with each other. So it doesn't matter what airline this happens on um, or whether or not you personally know the person, you feel it. 
And Mm -hmm. uh, this is really, really disruptive to the work that we do and also just our own sanity and um, support from our families. I mean, a lot of flight attendants are hearing from their families. Are you sure that you want to continue to do this? Right. Well, there seem to be more of these incidents lately. Why? What is it? Is it mask-related, COVID-related? Um, how do you read it? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, let me put this in perspective. We're on track to have more incidents in 2021 than in the entire history of aviation. And Whoa. air rage was an Whoa. issue that we started to deal with in the 1990s. We started to see some of these events happening. And so we worked really hard to get Congress to put in place penalties and fines And that's what you hear about today. You hear about the FAA fining people. And um, then you also hear that we have been calling for the Department of Justice to prosecute, criminally prosecute, because anyone who is interfering with our duties or assaulting a crew member can face up to 20 years in prison. Uh, We need those those consequences to be in place. After we got this in place and we got it in um, the year 2000, it took a little while to get implemented. But as events continued to go up around the world, Once we started having prosecutions, people faced jail time and fines, and that was reported out publicly. Events went down in the U.S. So we know that this works. This can serve as a very effective deterrent. And we need every possible thing to have people think, do I really want to act out on a plane? But back to your original question about why is this happening? What's going on? Uh, I I do need to note that about three quarters of the events are mask related or they're reported as mask related. That doesn't mean that was the only thing going on. There's a couple things there about that. We are reporting these incidents um, as we got the federal mandate in uh, January, late January. And so that required then reporting on that issue. And now that this is a new issue, you're seeing more reports. So some of that can just be related to this is a new safety requirement. We're hearing about it more. We're reporting on it now. Um, But typically what we're finding out there is that it's not the masks that are creating the violence. There is something else going on. There is this idea that we're at conflict with each other. People are very angry. We also have essentially everyone on our plane is a first time flyer. So we're answering questions. Our duties at boarding are a lot heavier and 50, our members told us in through a survey that we conducted this summer that 50% of the events, they saw some uh, troubling factors happening in the gate area or during the boarding process. Now, if you think about it, once you get up in the air, there's not a lot of options that you have for <laughs> right. dealing with these things. <laughs> right. If you could take at least 50% of these events and keep them on the ground, we'd be in a better place. But we are understaffed. We are, uh, you know, staffed at minimums. And um, so it's very difficult for us to see them or even when we see these issues, get to them and deal with them because everybody has questions about where do I put my bags? Where do I sit? Oh, somebody's sitting in my seat. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and there's a yeah. lot going on. Um, so we could do more to keep the problems on the ground. But I have to tell you, this starts first and foremost with communication from leadership and people do not know what to believe today. They don't know why rules are in place um, and uh, why they exist and why we have to enforce them. They've been told that any kind of instruction to them is an interference with their own personal liberties. And that has been, you know, the political speech that has led us Mm -hmm. to this place. That's sort of like the trickle down, right? From the political, from the political speech to, um, yeah. I mean, not only have people died, we, we, we know the COVID numbers, right? But 
people on the front lines in retail, I mean, you, can you imagine the people who work on commission in retail and have to deal with this stuff on the, on the front lines, the people doing mass transit, the nurses in hospitals, and, you know, the flight attendants, the teachers in the schoolrooms, and the, and the flight attendants on the planes. Um, this is, we are dealing with the fallout of public leaders saying that this is all political leading people to this place of, mm-hmm. of um, not even having the same set of facts to deal with. And when you have that, when you keep people on edge for that long, people naturally are anxious. We know this as flight attendants. We deal with people all the time. It's not good to keep people in a state of not knowing what to believe. And it causes people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise. How many, I, I as a frequent flyer myself, and by the way, I, I have the utmost respect and admiration for flight attendants and what they have to put up with and 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 the and the service that, that, that they provide I just admire them so much um, and and you Sarah too and your leadership but how much of, how many of these how much of these incidents is alcohol related so our members told us in the survey that 58 percent of the incidents include included alcohol and yeah. oftentimes that oftentimes that's alcohol that's consumed before people even get on the plane right right that's what I was thinking. Sure. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's no, there's really no control over that, right? You look at the bars in the airports, <laughs> any time of day, there are people sitting at that bar before they get on their flight, right? Well, we have a problem. I am testifying uh, before the Homeland Security Committee later today. And um, one of the things that I'm going to be talking about is the fact that during coronavirus, we moved to a to-go system for food and beverages. And as the airlines uh, or the airports and concessionaires are trying to make up money, their biggest moneymaker is alcohol. So now what we've seen is they they figure out, oh, we can sell more if people can take it away. So they're pushing to go alcohol. Mm. And it is in direct conflict with the federal regulations that you cannot serve yourself in an airport or on an airplane. Um, And it's also pushing this idea that you should drink as much as you can. And the regulations also say, that you cannot board an aircraft inebriated. Now, we may or may not be able to identify that when someone's coming on the plane, but when they get up in the air and and they, that aircraft yep. is pressurized yep. to 8,000 feet, that alcohol is also going to affect them differently. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So overall, the airlines took a big hit, uh, of course, uh, during the pandemic. They're, they're struggling to get back now. Um, are they ready to come back? Uh, do they have enough uh, resources, enough planes, enough crew? Well, Bill, this is so I'm very proud of what our union did to put in place the workers first package in COVID relief for the airline industry affected 2.1 million workers. And what we did was we got the relief money that went to the airlines could only be spent on workers pay and benefits. They Mm -hmm. could not furlough us. They could not reduce our pay rates and it banned stock buybacks and capped executive compensation. And those bans are still going on right now. Um, so it was it was an, an incredibly effective program to keep workers in place because if we had not had that program and the airlines had just furloughed eighty percent of our staff because that's where we were that's how that's how bad things were um, then to get them back onto the job trained again recertified that takes time and so the airlines would not even be here at all what we are seeing the effects of is what happened prior to coronavirus when this country moved 
from, you know, one person doing a 40 hour work week and that being enough to live on and have benefits and be able to have a good life to stripping that back and um, making it so that people have to work more to make more that that happened in the airline industry after 9-11 with all of the bankruptcies. And so the productivity was driven through the roof where previously there might have been one person doing the work for these flights. And now um, it takes it takes um, half that number. So one person is doing the work of what two people used to do at the airlines. So now in coronavirus, when you have people who are um, being more diligent about actually taking sick leave when they're sick, um, because there's so much concern around that, and also um, you know getting the vaccine, and they may need to take an extra sick day uh, for the recovery there. Um, or um, they're looking at what's happening to them on board and getting sort of gnawed away at every time they go to work. And they're not as interested in picking up that additional trip. So what we're seeing as the results of driving the, the labor market to higher and higher productivity. And now people are just not not willing to do it. They're not willing to give that much of themselves. They've, they've had a chance to sit back and see their families and see what's going on. And also the conditions at work are horrible. And so that's what you're seeing in some of the staffing problems around the airlines right now. Right. They're, they're just not ready to come back to business as usual, I guess. Right. Which is working at 150 or 200% of what would yep. normally be a full-time job. Yes. Right. Uh, you know, one contradiction that I saw, there was so much concern uh, among the public about flying during COVID. And yet there were very few cases of people who actually got COVID from flying on a plane, right? I mean, we have been tracking this and the incidents, what happened throughout COVID is that uh, the incidents of contracting COVID on the plane where you can actually identify that Right. was following the same national rates of um, infections everywhere else. So it wasn't as though when you got on a plane, you were more at risk. Now, that's only because of the steps that we took. Exactly. So we had um, enhanced cleaning. We had the HEPA filtration in the air uh, filtration system. And we had the masks. The masks were critically important because in, on an airplane, for sure, you cannot properly socially distance. So having all of those things in place helped to keep the airplane and the airports a more controlled environment. And I want to take some credit for that. I mean, that's because we're 80% union and we were in there pushing these things with our management and working with them. And I think we were very effective in putting in place a pretty controlled environment. But what it meant was that you weren't at greater risk by getting on a plane than going somewhere else. Is there a vaccination mandate for airline employees or, or should there be? There effectively is a vaccine mandate for airline employees. And let me, let me, some airlines have actually put those mandates in place. Others are in the process of doing that. But it kind of doesn't matter what the airlines do because airline networks are worldwide. And so people have mm. to meet the standards of other countries as well. And other countries have vaccine mandates in place. So if you're an airline employee, you're going to have to get vaccinated no matter what your airline has said at this point. The other thing is that uh, a lot of people forget this, but airlines are major government contractors. Yeah, and so all right. of the government contractors are subject to that vaccine mandate. Right. Now, now, Sarah, a lot of the problems that we've talked about here uh, and challenges facing um, flight attendants and other uh, workers for the airline industry um, are writ large in the <laughs> American economy today 
as the economy recovers from COVID and people face these challenges about whether to go back to work or whether not, or are they going to accept the same conditions or not? Um, is this, some people see this as sort of, this is the worker's best moment, right? Because workers have more power and more opportunities and more choices now than ever before. Do you see it that way? Well, I, I mean, I do. the conditions certainly are helpful for that. I think that any time that um, workers in this country understand that they actually have the power, that the corporations have control and money, but workers actually have the power, they create all the value and they can withhold that value too. Yeah, right. Um, so so I, I don't think that fundamentally this changes that dynamic. What What's different right now is, of course, that there's a tight labor market because of the conditions you were describing. Right. But also, working people saw that they don't have to be ashamed of not making ends meet because during coronavirus, everybody, everybody kind of stopped and they saw, oh my God, they're pushing us into unsafe workspaces. So this isn't just about whether or not I can get by. They are actually looking at me as disposable. And I think the American people across the board, working people are really fed up with it. They're like, you know, we're not a family here at this corporation. You're not, you're not treating me like a family member, you know, and and my work, what does it matter to you? If you're going to treat me as disposable, then clearly you don't really value what I'm giving to this company to make it great. So um, I think that there is that shared experience coming out of this where workers are saying enough already. I, I can't protect my family. I can't get proper health care and I can't even think about retiring. And mm -hmm. it's it's enough. So we have to organize in the millions right now because we're this is going to be a fleeting moment if we don't. If you don't lock in unions and have the legal protections that you gain by having a union, then you can walk off the job. You can have management meet your demands. Um, but then the next day they can revert back and unlikely they would do it the next day. But as soon as the labor market loosens up a little bit and they're feeling maybe a little more control or they can hire other people, they're going to go right back. So if you don't lock it in in black and white with a union, um, it's just, it's not going to stay that way. You're not going to make lasting change. Well, as a, a lifetime union member and a strong pro-union uh, person, uh, worker myself, I mean, uh, it seems to me that this is the best possible time for unions to organize, right? I mean, we see that now with this new Starbucks thing, yes. uh, with Amazon and others. Uh, it, do, do, do you feel that within the labor movement that there is a, 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 a reawakened interest in, in the uh, opportunities that a union provides? Look, I think that unions are recognizing that this is a moment. I don't know that we're fully, you know, grabbing this moment to its greatest potential um, of what we can really achieve or help workers find. If you look back even before coronavirus, uh, the business roundtable and the chamber were actually identifying that maybe we've pushed workers a little too hard. You can go back and look at some of their statements and hmm. some of the concerns that they had. And they actually talked about a worker revolt, you know, and that's where we that's where we were. And so, you know, I think as a labor movement, we should be organizing in the millions, but we should also be going to these corporations and saying, <laughs> It's time that you work with us. It is time because you're going to have a you're you're experiencing it now. If you don't get busy understanding that a collective bargaining um, relationship 
is good for your business. Like, let's lock that in. Let's figure out where we can get neutrality agreements and um, organize without them fighting us, without them spending money on fighting us. That is their best chance of having stability. That's their best chance of saving our democracy. And there may be some who are open uh, to that dialogue, but we need to be pushing these discussions and pushing these demands as a labor movement on the whole. And I know, Sarah, recently you have written in the in New York Times about some of the problems uh, that workers face, uh, given um, so many conservative judges, particularly Trump-appointed judges around the country. Uh, I want to ask you about that, but we're going to take a quick break here, and then we'll pick up on the other side if you just hold for just a minute. Sounds great. And today's podcast with Sarah Nelson, labor leader Sarah Nelson, is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, and another great labor leader, President Randy Weingarten, uh, representing America's teachers, the AFT, 1.7 million American teachers uh, in grades K through 12 and higher education as well. They've been on the front lines during the pandemic. They're back on the front lines now as kids get back into the classroom, uh, doing the Lord's work every day. We love America's teachers. Salute them and thank them for their good work, and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at AFT.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free, or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on today's podcast, the Bill Press Pod, with uh, Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants, representing over 50,000 flight attendants with 17 different airlines. Uh, Sarah, welcome back. So again, in the New York Times recently, um, you pointed out that one of the big obstacles workers face today uh, in state after state are these conservative judges who don't seem to even recognize basic or, well, put it, they're very pro-corporate and uh, in terms of corporations who don't recognize the, the basic worker rights that, um, that have lo long ago established in this country. Tell us about that. 
Yes. Well, the courts have been siding uh, reliably with corporations and very rarely for the workers. If you think about uh, a worker's chance of even getting to the court, that's probably only if you have a union backing you or you have some kind of family trust that, that backs yeah. up your legal fees <laughs> right. to be able to take that on. <laughs> um, and so just even getting to court is a high bar. Once you get there, though, uh, what we're seeing is incredible uh, destruction of workers' rights through the courts. So even as we push forward on the PRO Act and on fixing the lopsided labor law that's in place today, um, if we just allow this trend to move, go on with no one on the bench who understands what it's like to be in the trenches with workers, who understands what the importance are of those rights and why it's important to have them, um, then it, 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 whatever we do in Congress, it, it's not it's going to get eroded with decisions from the court. So just recently um, in the area of free speech and protest, the ability for workers to protest, there's been two recent decisions, first at UAW and then uh, with the mine workers in Alabama. The mine workers is probably the most horrific. The The court ruled that they couldn't come within 300 feet of any of the entrances of the mines. So yeah. this is way on public property we're talking about now. They're they're telling they're saying that these workers can't even get close um, to holding their picket lines and protesting the company. It's outrageous. It's an outrageous infringement of free speech and um, complete degradation of any kind of rights of workers to um, to speak up about the conditions that they're facing at work. Um, and and at the same time, um, the state has refused to charge um, vehicle operators who have hit the strikers at least five times mm. on the picket line when they are standing off the road um, and and where they are supposed to be able to picket. So that's extraordinary. In, in the UAW case in Iowa, they um, said that only four people could stand at the entrance to the plant. This this is insane. Um, how do you how do you run a picket line or have any kind of actual meaningful protest uh, with those kind of restrictions? And then it's also you know picking apart labor law that has been in place for a very long time. For example, in California, a law that's been on the books since 1975 that union organizers can go out in the fields and vineyards to talk with farm workers about organizing that just got overturned this year. Um, and Chief Justice Roberts actually talked about it in terms of invading. In fact, I think he used the word invade mm -hmm. several mm -hmm. dozen times in the decision, but invading the grower's property, overturning that law that has been on the books since 1975. So this is a complete and, and persistent uh, destruction of workers' rights through the courts. And we have to pay attention to that. And we have to have people named to the bench who, who understand why these rights exist and why it's important to uphold them. Right. Uh, and that means, of course, electing people who are going to appoint the right kind of judges. Right? It, it starts there, doesn't it, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> it does too. Um, speaking of the right politics, the right policy at the time, uh, what do you see as the impact? Uh, again, we're talking about American workers today uh, uh, and um, the opportunities they have. Uh, how, what do you see the opportunities prevented, first of all, by the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which uh, President Biden signed on Monday, just yesterday? 
Yeah, look, there's going to be a lot of opportunities through that. There's going to be a lot of roads and bridges built um, that that uh, we're going to make sure is union labor. Uh, there's an expansion of broadband um, that gives uh, workers in, in my union, Communications Workers of America, a lot of opportunity and also um, make sure that uh, the working class actually has access to this infrastructure to be able to use that. Um, we, we all saw how deficient that was when we were trying to teach kids uh, virtual learning across the country, and we just simply didn't have the infrastructure in place to do it. Um, so the the investment in infrastructure is important, but we have to do the other half of that too. We haven't gotten to the part about you know making it possible for workers to actually come to work. If if we most uh, families in this country are spending more on childcare today than they would on um, spending going to uh, college. And so that is just unsustainable. And a lot of the women, that's why a lot of the women fell out of the workforce during this process, because they had to take care of the uh, children. And they, and then in doing that, they found out, gosh, I'm spending 80% of my time at work just to pay uh, to take care of my kids. I can cut back in some other areas and actually be with my kids and not be away 16 hours a day trying to make ends meet. So we have to make sure that we're paying attention to the care infrastructure as well. And mm -hmm. that part of the package has not been passed yet. And we got to keep fighting for it because there's just not going to be the return to the economy if we don't do that. You, right. you won't be able to have people join the workforce. One thing I notice is that every time the president, President Biden speaks about the both the bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, and the Build Back Better bill and talks about the millions of jobs that will follow, he always says union jobs, union mm -hmm. jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Where, which, uh, which I, I think is sig significant and certainly shows his intent. Uh, speaking about the Build Back Better, you mentioned childcare. The other element that is uh, back was taken out. Now it's back in. Hopefully, yep. it stays in. Is of course Family and Medical Leave Act. Yeah, this is a big deal for us. Our union is making calls like crazy on this. Um, you know, there's there's no other developed country in the world that doesn't have uh, some kind of family Unbelievable. provision. And I think about this in terms of you know we negotiate in our contracts sick leave, but uh, we've had to fight. In fact, we just want to fight in Illinois. Um, at the state house, uh, the ability for airline workers to have access to the Illinois sick leave plan that allows you to take that sick leave for um, a dependent um, or a, a family member that you're caring for. And so it's both of these things. It's both the time and also uh, the ability to have that with any sort of without any sort of repercussions from your employer. And women, um, it, uh, my union is 80% women. Mm -hmm. So uh, when they go through childbearing years, they often will sort of um, not work as much. We've worked really hard on negotiating, um, you know, a, for example, a year of uh, leave, maternity leave. Um, but they will, they will go through times in their career when they just need a little help. And if we're really if we're really dedicated, like, you know, the corporate world says that they're dedicated to get getting women in the boardroom and getting women into leadership. Um, and if we're, we really mean that as a country, then we need to pass these provisions because more often this affects women than men and uh, people of color. And so if we're actually committed to diversity, this is one of the most important things that you can do because it's just a little bridge to keep people employed. Um, and then be able to get back to work without the disruption. Right today, people are having to choose to leave. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, overall, not so much maybe for flight attendants, for, for American workers, uh, how serious a threat do you see automation? Uh, I, I see, for example, at the airports, there's a lot, lot more of these kiosks that you go to rather than going up and actually speaking to a living human being. Yeah. Well, um, I think that automation should be, uh, well, first of all, um, we are um, really in a tough place if we're afraid of robots. And almost, <laughs> almost 50 years ago, um, Henry Ford said to Walter Ruther as they were, um, as they were going through a plant, uh, that, um, that Ford was putting in place with more automation in it. He said, he said to Walter Ruther, who was the head of the United Auto Workers at the time. Um, so Walter, how are you going to have these machines pay union dues? And, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> Walter mm -hmm. spit right back. He said, Henry, how are you going to have these machines buy your cars? <laughs> so, so if we don't understand that automation is an opportunity um, for greater productivity that we share, so we need to be thinking about moving the 40-hour work week to 30 hours, for example, um, everyone should be sharing in the productivity that's created out of this innovation. And if we do that, then we're going to continue to have a humming economy. Uh, if we don't, um, then we're going to have greater and greater inequality and an economy that and democracy that will collapse. Uh, and, and finally, this is a contradiction I think all of us are dealing with, and I, I, I don't understand it. I'm not sure anybody can. I don't know whether you do. But uh, I just, just I want to read you one sentence recently from uh, – from the New York Times, this is Neil Irwin a week or so ago, uh, talking about how he sees the world today or the state of the American economy. Quote, workers have seized the upper hand in the labor market, attaining the largest raises in decades and quitting their jobs at record rates. The unemployment rate is 4.6% and has been falling rapidly. And yet he goes on to point out that 68% of respondents in the New York Times recent polls say economic conditions are getting worse. And that includes a majority of Democrats. Why don't people feel better about the economy today? They are getting, it is getting worse. Um, so I've talked about those miners on strike in Alabama. And if yeah. you look at any one of the strikes going on, the, the issues are the same. They're fighting for the eight hour day once again. This is, this is a fight that their union won in 1904 with the anthracite strike. Mm. And so in one and over and over, and we made it standard in the country over the next uh, uh, two decades. We're fighting for that again. In some cases, corporations are keeping control of the schedule, scheduling people for six hours so they don't qualify for benefits. In other cases, they're using forced overtime to be able to um, get their products out the door. Um, in any case, where the eight-hour day is gone, people are fighting for vacation and sick leave and a living wage, and healthcare. Healthcare is eating up more time at the bargaining table, and more and more costs are being shifted to workers. Retirement security. There's been a massive uh, termination of defined benefit pension plans that essentially doesn't exist anymore. That's why people are saying that it's worse than it ever was because they're not able to give their children a better life, and they're not even able to think about retiring themselves. And that is the state that we're in because unions have become so scarce in this country. And so we haven't been able to take on capital because when we win in a contract, we actually bring capital to that fight because they don't want to have to compete in a market where um, they have to pay more than others. And in addition to that, 
um, those other companies also have to attract workers. So they're forced to uh, improve their pay and benefits as well. And, and that sort of cycle and that leapfrog bargaining is just not happening in this country. So that's why we've got to organize. And um, until we do, people are going to continue to feel that things are getting worse, not better. Uh, and that is the importance, of course, of the labor movement and uh, the importance of uh, being a member of a union and uh, making it possible and easy for workers to be able to form a union. Uh, and so with that with that kind of transition, I want to ask you one final question, Sarah. We know last year, um, I guess it was earlier this year, we've, we experienced uh, the great loss of Rich Trumpka, our good friend as president of the AFL-CIO. August 5th. Uh, August 5th, it was. that well. uh, And uh, Liz Schuler is now um, the act, acting president. Uh, she will be up for re-elect for, she's going to run, I guess, in June, June 2022. Uh, a lot of labor friends that I talk to, Sarah, I hear the name of Sarah Nelson as a possible candidate for the new president of the AFL-CIO. Um, are you running? Have you made a decision? Are you considering it? Uh, Bill, I am considering it. I haven't made a final decision. Um, there's um, a lot to consider, but there's a lot to be done. And uh, I do feel a, a very strong uh, responsibility um, to take this very seriously and uh, consider running. Um, there is too much opportunity and too much to be gained and too much to coordinate in these times. And um, I, you know, I think, I think it's really important that as people are talking about that, that I not just um, just uh, ignore uh, those calls to action uh, because that's what I've done throughout my entire career. No, no position have I ever imagined myself in. I've actually been called to <laughs> uh, so, so I'm taking it very seriously for that reason. All right. Well, I think you'd be great. And when you're ready to make a decision and make that announcement, let us know and we'll come back and we'll come back and talk again. Sounds good, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants. We'll be back on Friday with our weekly roundtable. This is going to be one hell of a week. The president signing the bipartisan infrastructure bill may be a big vote in Congress on the Build Back Better bill containing child care and those other good things we talked to Sarah Nelson about. Steve Bannon has turned himself into federal authorities. Is Mark Meadows next? We'll talk about all of it with our reporters roundtable on Friday on the Bill Press Pod. Meanwhile, take care of yourself. Come back and see us for the Bill Press Pod roundtable.